There is a line in the Heart Sutra that has caught my attention for the past couple of years. It is the line that says, no sight, no sound, no smell, no taste, no touch, no object of mind. It is particularly the phrase, no object of mind, that has drawn my attention. As some of you know, I am a psychotherapist. In psychology, and especially psychotherapy, the term object is used very often. What strikes me from reading some of the Buddhist sutras, as well as other Buddhist, Buddhist writing, is how similar the term of a mind object or mental object is used in Buddhism and psychotherapy. Buddha has sometimes called, has been called the world's first psychologist. This is fitting because in describing the path of liberation and freedom from suffering, Buddha needed to discuss how human consciousness operates. Like a good scientist, Buddha first identified the problem of human suffering, then described how it functioned, and then proposed a solution. In explaining how the mind functions, Buddha de described the process in which we interact with the world. First, there is a sensation based on some contact with the environment. For instance, uh, light touches our eyes. Then the sensation is perceived by the brain or mind, so we register an image like a, a dog or a car. Then there is a thought that gives a label or concept to the image that there is a large dog or a red car. The overall experience of this process of sensing, perceiving, and thinking results in our sense of consciousness. Along with the ability to touch things and to recognize the form of our body, these are the five passageways through which we have contact with the world. This is what Buddha called the five skandhas or five aggregates. The Heart Sutra says that when one realizes that the five skandhas are empty, that is impermanent and insubstantial, then one is free of all suffering and distress. Since a mind object is a major part of one of the five skandhas, it seems important to try to understand how it operates and functions in our lives. A mind object involves the process of placing a concept or category on what we have perceived. While Pola Raula, a Buddhist scholar and monk, describes the mind as involving, quote, the world of ideas and thoughts and mental objects, end quote. An object can be on the very simple level of identifying a chair to sit in or seeing what color a traffic light is when you are standing on a street corner. Mind objects of other people, particularly important relationships of ours, are referred to by psychologists as mental representations or as internal objects. You can see how similar the terms are. Our most important and most difficult mind objects are those of other people, especially those who are closest to us. An internal object of a person we are close to is an image of that person that has been built up over time by many repeated experiences. These often involve pleasurable and painful experiences that develop a variety of feelings and thoughts. In addition to our actual interactions with our parents, siblings, friends, spouses, and children, we add our own inner responses, reactions, and interpretations for why and how people have treated us the way they do. One example of how we can construct a mind object that has a very different internal reality from an actual experience sometimes happens to a child when his or her parents get divorced. The child may blame him or herself for the divorce, 
somehow his or her bad behavior led to the parents fighting and splitting up. Usually this is far from the truth of the, prob of the problems in the marriage, which may have been going on for a long time and involved the couple's frustrations with each other. In terms of relationships that we develop with other people, we all have two relationships going on with any one person. One is the real external person, and the other is, our internal, is with our internal object of the person, which is similar but different from who the person is. I have gone into some detail in describing what a mind object is because I think it is an important concept in Buddhism, and I think the concept can be useful in our everyday practice. It isn't an exaggeration to say that an hour does not go by without our thinking about and reacting to our internal objects. If you have ever had the experience of replaying an argument you had in the past with someone important to you, and in your mind you say things you wish you had said at the time, or you imagine a different outcome of the interaction, then you have experienced the way internal objects function. Being aware of and working with your internal images of other people can be a way of practicing mindfulness. One aspect of mindfulness is practicing mindful intentions, speech, and actions. What often gets in the way of doing this is that we talk and act with defensive and, and impulsive responses to certain situations. For instance, many of us are sensitive to criticism. When someone close to us says they don't like something we did, we may feel both anxious and angry and then counterattack with the criticism of the other person. This often escalates into a fight that probably could have been avoided if you had initially listened with more patience and considered whether there was some validity in what the other person was saying. What usually makes us react by attacking the other person or denying what they are saying is that a mind object is being triggered inside. It is the way we interpret the criticism that makes us angry and defensive. Different people will experience criticism in various ways, depending on the internal objects that they have developed over the years. Some of us will feel humiliated by criticism, others will feel attacked, rejected, guilty, or fear being abandoned. Our internal objects of a critical other are usually much more severe than what the other person is saying in a current situation. What I have outlined about how we might react to criticism applies to a wide range of situations. Many times we have difficulty dealing with being disappointed by others. Five different people who get upset when they are disappointed may get hurt for five different reasons. Some people feel it isn't fair for someone to say no to them. Some people feel the other person is punishing them by withholding what they need. Still others feel it is a sign that someone doesn't love them. Why else would they do something that was hurtful? These types of reactions intensify the pain that we feel in our lives. They also reinforce images and definitions of other people that make us feel it isn't safe to really be open because someone can hurt us or is threatening in some way. Buddha often talked about how the mind creates our world. Mind objects are, in a certain sense, the building blocks of our illusions and delusions about the world. 
One exercise to practice mindfulness is to focus on any experience and to observe that we have our sensation, perception, thought, and consciousness of the experience. We can apply this to upsetting emotional responses, such as anxiety, depression, and anger. If we are feeling anxious, it can be helpful to simply say, I have the sensation of anxiety, I have the perception of anxiety, I have the thought of anxiety, and I have the consciousness of anxiety. Sometimes by going through the process of identifying how an emotion functions, it helps to give one a sense of distance and actually decreases the feeling. When this doesn't decrease an unsettling feeling, it is useful to ask yourself, what is the mind object that is part of the feeling? Am I sad because I just yelled at my child and feel like a bad parent? Am I angry because I didn't get a promotion at work and I feel unappreciated? Do I feel anxious because I said no to a friend and I am worried he or she will stop liking me? Why is this thought so important to me? So far I have discussed mind objects that involve the representations of other people. There is another set of internal objects that involve images and definitions of the self. We all have positive and negative images of ourselves that we constantly reinforce through the inner conversations we have. If we are overly attached to maintaining an image of ourselves as generous and kind, it may be difficult when we need to draw a limit with someone and say no to a request that we feel uncomfortable with. If we are often self-critical or have to constantly prove our self-worth, then we may have a real problem allowing ourselves to enjoy positive experiences in our lives, including feeling good about our accomplishments. Whatever we do, it doesn't feel like it is enough. Mind objects affect how we define other people and ourselves. They can hold us back from more freely exploring possibilities in the world and block us from growing psychologically and spiritually. I have primarily focused on how mind objects operate internally, how they affect the way we think about ourselves and others, and how this applies to mindfulness practice. There is another aspect of how mind objects can be a part of Buddhist practice that has to do with karmic activity. Projection is a concept that is used in very similar ways in psychology and Buddhism. Projection means taking assumptions and expectations we have and placing them on other people. So the other night I came home from work and my cat slipped out the door and went into the hall, which he likes to do. I put my things down and my wife pointed toward the door. I reacted by saying in a slightly annoyed way, I know he's in the hall, you don't need to tell me to go get him. My, my wife responded by saying she wasn't telling me to get the cat, she was just pointing in a way of saying, isn't he cute? I projected onto her my assumption that she was being controlling. The expectations we project on other people are tied to the mind objects we have developed. Our internal objects are the motivations of many of our actions and reactions. In terms of Buddhist practice, the karmic actions we take and the patterns they form affect our spiritual development. In the Ilwan Song Vow, it says that we progress or regress in life through, quote, receiving grace from harm 
or harm from grace, end quote. To me, this describes how we can respond to difficult situations in positive, constructive ways and make progress. Or we can take fortunate situations for granted, and if we are arrogant, self-indulgent, or, neg or neglectful of others, we will eventually have harmful results. Obviously, how we approach both difficult and fortunate conditions depends a lot on the mind objects that we carry around. We all know what it feels like to be defensive. We react impulsively, quickly, and often intensely. From both a psychological and Buddhist perspective, I think it can be useful when we notice ourselves reacting defensively to ask what kind of mind object got triggered by a certain situation. There are two questions which can be helpful to ask. What is the thought that I am putting on to another person, and why am I so invested or attached to this thought or need? Sometimes we get anxious about a situation that hasn't happened yet. We might anticipate scenarios in which other people are hostile towards us, and they want to block us from getting something we want. How many times have you had a meeting with colleagues at work, friends, or family members, and you think people are going to deny you something you think is important, and you visualize this disagreement leading to a confrontation? Then when the meeting actually happens, often the other people are more open and cooperative than you expected. Our worst fears almost never happen because they are tied to our projections rather than to reality. This is a common experience of how we project our fears onto the future. Projecting our fears as well as our anger and resentment are in part connected to our need to be in control. We all want to have a sense of security, safety, happiness, and success, and we want life to be this way all of the time. Although we know intellectually that this wish is unrealistic and actually impossible, we have difficulty letting go of the fantasy that if I try hard enough, I can control every situation in my life. Our need to be in control extends to maintaining and controlling our mind objects. We can be so attached to the need to see ourselves or others in a certain way that we get locked into holding on to negative relationships. For instance, let's say there is a woman who we will call Diane and that she is a generally well-functioning adult but that Diane often feels angry at her parents for not being more emotionally supportive and open in their relationship with her. Diane may have felt ignored and dismissed a lot as a child and may have felt her parents just didn't think she was important enough to make an effort to give her the attention and encouragement she needed. As an adult, Diane may still be trying to get the understanding and connection she always wanted from her parents. So she may keep reinforcing and responding to mind objects of her parents and herself that result in feelings of anger, frustration, anxiety, and inadequacy. What Diane may not see is that her parents couldn't give her what she needed because of limitations in their ability to be attentive and engaged with her. It's not because she was not good enough or because they wanted to punish her, but because they didn't have the emotional ability to give her what she needed. Refusing to see her parents as they really are could make Diane tied to mind objects that keep reinforcing a lot of pain, 
and that also get played out in other relationships of hers. On the other hand, to realize her parents have their own problems and issues as people might enable Diane to let go of, of trying to get things in her relationship that her parents simply don't have to give. If she could let go of the wish for them to be the parents she wants them to be and see them for the people they are, then Diane might also be able to let go of her feelings of anger and frustration at them and her own feelings of anxiety and guilt about not being good enough. This would be an example of taking grace from a harmful situation. I have talked about ways to focus on our mind objects in order to identify the meanings we attach to them so we can decrease the pain, confusion, and difficulties they cause. I don't want to suggest that we get overly preoccupied with questioning every thought or action of ours. I think that clarifying the meaning we assign to mind objects actually helps us to eventually let go of them more effectively. When we can let go of these thoughts, our minds can be less cluttered and distracted. Shinru Suzuki, a Zen master, used the analogy of needing to clean out a room from time to time as an analogy to developing a quieter mind. He said, quote, when you study Buddhism, you should have a general house cleaning of your mind. You must take everything out of your room and clean it thoroughly. If it is necessary, you should bring back the things you took from your room. But before you put something in your room, it is necessary for you to take something out. If you do not, your room will become crowded with old, useless junk. When we carry around less junk of distracting thoughts, including thoughts of anger, resentment, fear, and disappointment, then we can have a clearer and calmer mind when we sit and meditate. The more consistently we meditate, the more concentration we develop, so we can choose not to follow thoughts that we know stir up negative feelings and actions. Thank you. <laughs>